O Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Give us grace to receive your truth in faith and love and strength to follow on the path you set before us through Jesus Christ. Amen. Today we'll begin by reading from the book of Acts again, from chapter 11. We'll read verses 19 to 26. If you have a Bible or device with Bible on it, you certainly feel free to follow along with me. And you may want to keep it open just because there's certain things that are written between the lines here that you might want to check out as we speak for a moment together about this. But uh, let us read now Acts chapter 11 starting at verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of of them named Abagus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I went ahead and read a little extra there because I'm going to reference that concluding part in just a moment. So the church at Antioch appears to be divided, pretty much like what you heard a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the division between the Hellenists and the Jews in Jerusalem. Now there's one significant difference here though, the Hellenists or Greek-speaking people in Antioch were mainly uh, Gentiles. Whereas in Jerusalem, they were people who had returned to the homeland of their faith from far far away, like places like Antioch, and spoke Greek. So to kind of put this in perspective, Judaism, by the time the Babylonian exile was over, which is about 500 years before these events, a little more like 600, okay? So the Babylonian exile put Jews all over the world as it was known in those days that was called the diaspora. And you might remember us talking last week about how the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom divided the, the lost tribes and all that. Well, some came back and restored worship in Jerusalem and restored the temple and all of that, but many stayed where they had ended up. And many of the events in scripture 
can span long periods of time without really giving you any direct indication of that. For example, this passage says that after the stoning of Stephen, as, and it, it sounds as though it happened immediately, but it actually had been a few years ago. So people started feeling pressure from Jewish authorities in Jerusalem uh, directed against Christianity. Now, history tells us about uh, the persecution of Christians in, in, uh, by the Romans. We, we all kind of cling to that story. And, you know, I remember a miniseries uh, several years ago, probably decades ago, you know, where it was a big emphasis. But history tells a little bit different story. Fact is, is the first persecutions of Christians came from within Judaism. And these persecutions were directed against Jews who had believed in Christ. This is what happened to Stephen. And this, by the way, I'll just tell you right now, uh, this is one of the reasons I'm certain that when persecution comes to Christianity within our context, whether it's Shiloh or whether it's outside, you know, in the, in the greater context of, of humanity, uh, it'll start within the body. It'll be Christians against Christians. It really already is, if you look at our denominational division right now, it's Christians against Christians. It's one brand of Christians saying that the other brand is wrong and should be punished for being wrong, you know. So this is exactly what happened in Jerusalem. For this reason, people started moving away from Jerusalem. They wanted to live in peace, raise their families in peace. So they went to places like Antioch. Antioch had a strong, long-standing Jewish community. And the Jewish Christians, that is the, Christ, the Jews who became Christians, immediately went to the Jewish neighborhoods, big neighborhoods, you know, think Skokie, Illinois, in Antioch. And it felt safe for them. These were people that they had a cultural affinity with. It was people that spoke Hebrew because they taught that in Hebrew school. So they're just like many uh, uh, committed Jews to this day, you know, who speak English, but they also know Hebrew because they learn Hebrew as a part of their education, their, their religious studies. And so these people felt comfortable with them. And what this passage is telling us is that, that's a, that they just stuck with those people. They didn't go outside of the Hebrew-speaking community. They stayed in their ethnic neighborhood. And so Christianity kind of got stuck in Antioch. And Antioch is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. So think Chicago, think, you know, Kansas City, think, think a big city, right? And they're staying in their neighborhood. Meanwhile, in this big metropolis, you have all this interracial, intercultural activity. You have all these people from all over the world, the Roman world as it was known in those days. And what happens in this case is something called syncretism. Now, if you read my little promo uh, tease to come to church on Sunday and learn something new, I said, here's a new word for your vocabulary, syncretism. Syncretism is a word that describes what happens to particularly faith-based beliefs and cultures and traditions when they start blending, they lose their core identity. So the Christians left Jerusalem to escape persecution from hostile Jews like Saul of Tarsus. And they went to Antioch and they went to the Jewish neighborhoods, which made sense because, you know, they could be welcomed in a strange city by people that already understood certain things about them. But those people have been established in that community for a long time. And so what happens is, is they're 
Judaism has already been sort of watered down by intermarriage and business relationships and friendships and all the things that cause people to get along well, but also cause people to begin to lose their distinctives. So then the Christians who come to Antioch begin to lose some of their distinctives. It's comfortable to hang out with these people. And so what you find is, is that the more secularized a religious group becomes, the more willing they are to combine various beliefs. And so if you can follow my logic string here, the Jews in Antioch are open-minded. They're broad-minded. They probably don't work, you know, like, like right now you have basically three branches of Judaism that are best known in our country and in our world. And there's one that is particularly broad-minded, and it probably is the largest number of Jews, let's say just for now, in North America, and they were people who would be called secular or cultural Jews. They, they've accepted this as, as a significant part of their heritage, but, you know, they're like Christmas and Easter only Christians, right? They, I don't mean that if you only get here on Christmas and Easter, you're bad, but, you know, there are some people that, that it's more of a cultural event than it is a religious activity. So track with my logic here for a minute. The Christians who were Jews leave Jerusalem to escape persecution from hostile Jews towards Christianity. They move to a community where there's a watered down version of Judaism and the Jewish, the Jewish community there says, yeah, we'll listen to your Jesus, good guy. Probably another one of the best prophets we've ever had. And so they start preaching a Jesus that's more of a prophet than the son of God the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the returning Messiah, right? You know, the Hellenist Jews, or the ones who speak the common language of the day, English is a pretty universal language in our world today, in those days it was Greek, and they were referred to as Hellenists. They came along and they said, you know, there's a whole city full of people here that need to know about Jesus, and you guys aren't telling them. We're going to tell them. And the Bible is telling us, like I said, there's a lot tucked between the lines here because the Bible is telling us that by contrast to what we just heard, the Holy Spirit is rocking and rolling among the Greek-speaking Christians. So it's telling us something that it didn't say outright about the Jewish Christians by telling us what happened with the Greek-speaking Christians. The Holy Spirit showed up and the Lord worked powerfully in their midst and the church grew and grew and grew. And the home church in Jerusalem, the one that's run principally by James and the other apostles, has heard of this. And they sent Barnabas, who by the way is a Hellenist or Greek-speaking Christian, to check it out and report back. And he says, man, the Spirit is rocking it here. And the church says, great, let's do everything we can to help them then. So by virtue of this movement toward the Greek-speaking Christians in Antioch, the church in Jerusalem is saying, this is the way to go. Again, they're not putting down the Jewish community of Christians in Antioch. They're simply saying, we're moving towards where the Spirit is at work and supporting that. 
And Barnabas is so sure that he could see what's happening that he goes to find Saul of Tarsus. Now, there's a whole other story. I mean, you could make, you could make a really great movie about Barnabas going up to Tarsus to try to find Paul. Because the whole story of Paul's life is remarkable in that he went through about 11 years of preparation before he actually was ready for his worldwide ministry. And he was laying low and trying to just make sure that he was waiting for the Lord to tell him when it was time to go. And Barnabas is looking for him to say, it's time to go. So that's a marvelous story in itself. But in this passage we just read, you hear that Barnabas brings Saul back and there is a restoration in Antioch and a great revival breaks out in Antioch. Maybe even the Jews who became a little too sec, uh, syncretized in their uh, watering down of their Christianity and their Jewish heritage and everything, maybe they got it again. Maybe the spirit got a hold of them again and really awakened their spirits. And, and something really remarkable happens because then Antioch becomes home base for the worldwide expansion of the church. Now, if you're tracking with me, you might remember that a few years, a few years, it <laughs> feels like it, right? A few weeks ago, I said to you, you know, remember that Luke laid out Acts in the format of Jesus's requirement that they take the ministry of Jesus to Judea, uh, Judaism, to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the world. And we understood that Jerusalem was here, wherever here is, and that Ju uh, Judea was around here, wherever around here is. And Samaria is any place you really don't want to go, and you don't think that those people need it or would receive it. And then you're ready to go to the world. So if you look at what is happening in this passage, it's now about part four. It's about the world. But it's got a little bit of uh, Samaria sprinkled in there because in a way you could say that the Jews who escaped Jerusalem to get away from persecution and went to the Jewish community in Antioch were basically avoiding their Samaria, right? They were trying to stay away from Greek-speaking people. And the Lord sort of called them on it by showing them how the spirit could break out without your help, <laughs> you know? And Saul appears to have been brought in, or the Apostle Paul, appears to have been brought in because of his unique ability to meld Judaism and Gentile life into one Christianity. And here's the point. The passage that you want to focus on is chapter 11, verse 26, B, we'll call it. And in Antioch, the disciples were the first called Christians. What happened? Basically, Christianity went from being a Jewish sect to being its own thing. And in Antioch, Christians became a distinctive, unique body of people who didn't have anything in common with anybody else. They stood out because there was no syncretism or melding of beliefs and, and a sort of watered-down Christianity. They produced a very evident, clearly defined identity as Christians. And so in doing this, 
they, pro, they prove to us that where the Holy Spirit is, Christians are there. They prove that Christians, and by the way, the word Christian was, like most names that we claim, a derogatory nickname once upon a time, you know, because that's what we do. We, we give people, you know, we take pride in being called Yankees in this country, right? You know, it was an insult. The British called them that as an insult, and the Americans said, great, that's what we are, and we're now proud of it. We've even named a baseball team after it, right? Great. Christianity, same thing, right? They called them Christians because they were always talking about Jesus and calling him Christ, which is a Greek word for the Savior, the Messiah. And so they were the Christ-talking, Christ-walking people. And the Christians of Antioch who spoke Greek said, yep, that'll do. And we've been calling them Christians ever since. Now, here's where I want to wrap this up. What do you suppose the Christians of Antioch, the Christians of Antioch would say about church as it is today? What would they say about our church? What would they say about the United Methodist Church? What would they say about all of this stuff that we call Christianity? How do we distinguish ourselves in a world that is so used to the term Christian that you can't say you're a Christian without people already having some sort of preconceived idea of what that means? And may I be honest with you, an awful lot of those people have a pretty ugly preconception of what that means. Now you and I know that's because they've run into church people who are rude and crude They've run into church people who are judgmental and unforgiving. They've run into church people who don't talk about Jesus Christ, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. They've run into church people who have had more moral superiority than they deserve. So how do we stand apart? How do we show people a unique comprehension of what it means to be Christ followers and Christ talkers and witnesses to Christ's spirit when our name's been so ruined. I'm not going to give you an answer in this message. I'm simply going to say that's the challenge. And as we've come through this wilderness discussion and now moved into what apostles act like, and then we're going to move into people who are ready for Christ's return, the answer to this question has to be at the front of our minds. How are the people around us in our Jerusalem, in our Judea, in our Samarias, in the world that we are sent to, how are they going to know that we're not like what they think Christianity is? the first people to be called Christians in Antioch were people who had so distinguished themselves from any form of Christianity up to that point in the worldwide scene had ever seen, had ever witnessed, and that's why they got the nickname. wonder what they'll call us if the Holy Spirit is driving Shiloh 
and the people of Shiloh are witnessing Christ and the way that they live and talk and what if it feels like the world is noticing that there's been an outbreak of revival and Holy Spirit power in our midst and, and what will people say about that and what will they call us? A bunch of Shilohites or something, I don't know. I don't know. God forbid they call you Danites or something, you know, I mean, it just, but what if we just said to the Lord together in this closing moment of prayer, we want to be your witnesses. We want people to see you, not us, and not, for goodness sakes, not this cruddy Christianity that so many people think is what we're about. Let us pray. I thank you, Lord, for your word. And now, with my family of faith, whether here or online or watching later, I pray that very prayer, Lord, that you would open our hearts and minds to receive your spirit. Lord, we're comfortable, frozen, chosen Methodists. So we don't, we don't think we could handle the kind of stuff that would make us afraid and frightened, but we know you better than that. We know that you are gentle and kind and that you can bring about revival in whatever people group, in whatever form suits you and them, just like what you did with that woman at the well in Samaria. And so we just welcome you into our hearts and we welcome you to change our communion, our community of faith so that it becomes an instrument of your grace and love in our community so people cannot help but notice that this isn't what they thought church people and Christianity was. Lord, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we pray. Amen.